Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Jim Brown. I'm a member of the club's Asia-Pacific Affairs-led forum, and I'll be facilitating the program this evening. Tonight, we'll be talking about one of the premier artists of Japan, Takashi Murakami, and the wonderful exhibition of his work that's currently on view at the Asian Art Museum here in San Francisco. Unfamiliar people, the swelling of monsterized human ego. How I like that title. Our two guests are Dr. Laura Allen, the museum's senior curator of Japanese art, and Rob Mintz, our chief curator. They're here this evening um, to tell you, just talk a little bit about the exhibit and how it happened to come to San Francisco and why it's on view here at the Asian Art Museum rather than at some other venue. Before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the history of tonight's program with the Commonwealth Club and why we're all here this evening. It all started last August at one of our member-led forum committee meetings. And uh, the forum's co-chair, Lillian Nakagawa. Lillian, are you here? She should be. You can stand up if you want. Uh, Well, anyway, Lillian um, turned to me and she said, Jim, I just read an article in the San Francisco Chronicle um, that the Murakami is coming, coming to San Francisco and there's going to be a big exhibit at the Asian Art Museum. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could get Murakami to come here to the Commonwealth Club and talk to us? And my reply was, Laura, that's, uh, excuse me, Lillian, that's just not going to happen. Um, no, I'm sorry, it's way above my pay grade. So anyway, um, Murakami is not here, but we have something even better. We have Dr. Laura Allen and Dr. Robert Mintz, who curated the, Laura came, went to uh, Japan. She met with Murakami three, four, three years ago, wasn't it, Laura? Three years, three, four years ago. And she'll tell you about how she convinced him to come to San Francisco and how the Asian Art Museum uh, got this wonderful solo exhibit of his work. But enough of me talking. Now for the introductions. Dr. Allen joined the Asian Art Museum in 2012 following a distinguished career as Japanese art history professor, lecturer, and independent scholar for more than two decades. After acquiring a PhD in Japanese art history at UC Berkeley, Dr. Allen taught at various universities and other educational institutions throughout the state, including the University of California, Irvine, and the University of San Francisco. She also returned to UC Berkeley on numerous occasions to lecture about Japanese art. And since she joined the Asian Art Museum, Dr. Allen has revitalized the museum's Japanese art collection, as well as overseen an ambitious program of new uh, exhibitions featuring both traditional as well as contemporary Japanese art. 
Dr. Robert Mintz, who will be in conversation with Laura this evening, is the Asian Art Museum's chief curator. He also happens to be a specialist in Japanese art and uh, painting. Dr. Mintz holds advanced degrees from both the University of Michigan as well as the University of Washington. He joined the Asian Art Museum in 2016, where he manages the museum's curatorial staff and directs the creation of inspiring new exhibits like Murakami's Unfamiliar People, The Swelling of Monsterized Human Ego. This exhibit literally brought thousands of new visitors into the museum since it opened last uh, September. But actually, Dr. Mintz, he corrected me. He said, Jim, it wasn't thousands. It was tens of thousands of people that came into the museum. And we're really fortunate to have both he and Dr. Allen here with us today. So it is now my privilege to introduce Rob Mintz and Laura Allen. They can come on up now um, and tell us how this wonderful exhibit came to San Francisco. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Um, you really, you know, explained who we are and what we do and, uh, you know, gave a bit of a sense. And this evening, what uh, Laura and I thought we would do is really just kind of have a conversation um, about this exhibition, about how it came together, and give you a little bit of a taste of, you know, what it's like behind the scenes in forming these exhibitions and uh, maybe a little taste of what uh, it's been like working with the artist, with the artist's team. Um, the artist runs a very large company. Unlike, you know, you you might imagine an artist. I, you've been to visit the company. Um, maybe you could tell them a little bit about what it was like when you first started to get interested in Takashi Murakami and and what you found when you went to see where he works. Mm. Well, I, I first became interested in his work about 20 years ago when I saw a painting called 727. How many people here have seen the show already? So a few of you have. Okay, so in the in the show, there's one painting, and it shows a kind of a fanged monster gliding across the canvas on a cloud. You might remember that one. So that painting is called 727, and it was painted in 1996. So about 20, maybe 20 years ago, a little more, I became aware of that painting. It caught my interest because the cloud is a like an embedded reference to a 12th century Japanese painting. And I was very interested in those old, old, old paintings mm -hmm. at that time and still am. And, um, you know, I thought, wow, that's so clever. You know, that's so interesting that he's mixing the brand new kind of anime or manga style characters, these silly characters with something that's, you know, from the far distant past. And I thought, oh, he has a really good sense of humor. And I, you know, I didn't know anything about his business operation. That only really became apparent a few years later and he's best known maybe for the Louis Vuitton bags. Uh, he did. He's done lots of collaborations with different companies where he brings his design sensibility and signature motifs into those collaborations. So most recently, he's been working with Hublot, a Swiss watch company, and you know the, the signature Murakami flower is being used as the 
motif for the watch. So at any rate, you know, as uh, time went on and we became involved in hosting this exhibition, you know, I knew that he really had a much bigger reputation. He does a lot of different things. He's a gallerist. He's a collector himself. He's a curator of exhibitions. He is a maker of lots of little goodies. They call them goodies that span the range from like keychains all the way up to uh, very expensive prints and his fine art as well. And he decided very early on that he wanted to provide art that was accessible for every level of society. So everybody can own a Murakami if they want to. And that was important to him. So his studio is outside of Tokyo. It's about 45 minutes outside of Tokyo. And it's a giant kind of like warehouse style building. It doesn't look like an artist's garret at all. It's brand new and modern. Um, and it's divided into a lot of different spaces for all of these different activities that he does. There is an area where they, you know, there are sewing machines and they're busy making canvas bags for sale. There's an area where they do printing. There are desks, rows and rows of desks where people fulfill orders and, um, and uh, you know, they do the business management of his studio life. Um, and they design products in many of these places. So you see little maquettes of different figures and keychains and everything that comes out of his studio, you know, has its start there in Tokyo. He used to have a second studio in New York, um, which I also visited around 2012. Um, so, yeah, you know, he's very diverse. He's very involved in all sorts of different things. Yeah, kind of a Renaissance man. <laughs> a very special kind of renaissance yeah. <laughs> I think yeah so I mean you start out with this this idea that you know oh there's this subtle reference to a 12th century hand scroll which is really fabulous after you got to meet him after you saw his factory and you know met the hundreds of people who worked with him producing his art um did it change your view at all of hmm. who this guy is can you turn down my mic just a little bit? Um, I'm usually soft-spoken, so to hear myself like, boom, it's tough. They, you know, when I when I first, he's, it's a little hard to penetrate because he's a very, you know, he has this public persona. So the first time I met him was at a party. We went to see a few exhibitions, um, you know, before we really got started with the planning for this exhibition. So we went, I went with Rob to Vancouver, and then I went to um, Fort Worth. I went to see a gallery show in Shanghai and a gallery show in New York they, at, and uh, L.A., you know, sort of went to many different places. And when he appears at those events, it's, he's not himself, right? He's in costume. He, he's like one of his own characters. He appears in like like a, I don't know, what would you, well, how would you describe it? You know, he's, he's created his own cast of characters. He brings, he brought seven hats with him to the museum so that he could have changes of costume. And the hats are like a flower hat or an octopus hat, or um, I don't remember the other ones, one with long pigtails. Um, so it's hard to penetrate that. It, it took a really long time to get to know him. And um, I think he keeps that distance with a lot of people. The the um, 
studio, you know, the kind of the business side of his activity seemed to be really overwhelming. And that's all I saw at the at the beginning. It took a long time to kind of penetrate that to see his artistic practice, his private, more private side of his artistic practice. Yeah, It's, it's really interesting to me, too, because I I was stunned. You know, he sent what he sent 26 people to San Francisco to install the show here, which most artists don't bring quite so many, but he brought a lot of people. And the day he arrived, you know, and he came into the exhibition space, the space that, that big space you see on the screen, and all of a sudden, all of his staff were on their tiptoes, running mm-hmm. to do things. I mean, they were scurrying around. It was like, oh, the CEO is here. Mm-hmm. You know, he, and, and clearly they are devoted to him in in a way that you know maybe maybe in the long run is not so healthy but it it was impressive to see you know the kind of dedication and yeah you know way that he runs this but you're right it's 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 really hard to find the real him underneath yeah. those roles he plays yeah. so so yeah for the first few times i met him it was either in character as or as ceo yeah. you know mm-hmm. ceo of his company yeah so Anyway, the first few years, the first time you met him was probably 2017, 18? It was 2018. 2018. It took a while, um, but eventually you got to this theme of monsters, you know, and, and as you wander through the show, they're happy, creepy monsters, and there are literally creepy monsters, and then there are the kind of psychologically um, distressing, <clears throat> maybe undisturbing monsters. But how did you, as curator get him get get him onto this theme how, how did it evolve as a as a conversation well he ignored me for a long time <laughs> someone someone on his staff pretty early on said to me that um he said murakami's work is like sashimi you can slice it in many different ways and i was like what does that mean and i finally figured out you know there are different approaches you can take and all the shows that i had seen up to that point have been retrospectives and i didn't want to do a retrospective partly because i'm an art historian of older art so i kind of like the thematic approach and um i thought monster sashimi would be a, a good choice you know monsters everybody likes monsters first of all so it's got a public appeal. And I wanted a lot of people to come to see the show because I feel like people haven't seen his paintings firsthand. A lot of people are familiar with the little tchotchkes and um, they might be know him as a record cover designer, you know, or an album. Yeah, album covers. I don't know what they're called anymore now that it's all digital. But, they, you know, they, the, um, the real work is so different, and it doesn't come across that well in digital form. You really have to see it firsthand. So I thought Monsters would be something that would draw a lot of people in. But it's also a through line throughout his work over the decades. So, you know, he's been really on the scene since 1992. And the Monsters appeared pretty early on in the 1990s and have been consistent. And he writes about, he writes a lot. He, he wrote there, you might have seen there's a quote among these slides that says something about how monsters have been on my mind since I was a young child or since the age of eight. And I think that that's true. You know, he was very moved by a painting of um, a Saturn and his, mm-hmm. his son yeah. by Goya that he saw as a child. And he really um, 
you know, he he took that to heart and, um, cre- you know, kept drawing monsters. So I wanted to take that through line and then also put it together with this idea that um, it hasn't come out so much in the exhibition, but early on um, there there was in his writing also, um, he was talking about otaku. Do you know, anybody know what otaku are? Ryan's shaking his head. Good. Uh, otaku are the fans of anime and manga, the people sort of obsessed with anime, the animated films in Japan, and manga, the cartoons or comics. He he loves that world in Japan, but he felt at the beginning of his career that people in the West didn't appreciate it. They thought it was garbage. They thought the people who were into it were garbage and were they were the west people in the western world were seeing them as monsters the people who liked that stuff as monsters and he wrote there's a whole little discourse about you know how he saw those um that that kind of conflict he wanted to bring anime and manga to the west and he was successful he made it now it's part of the canon of contemporary art you know that has happened partly because of uh, Murakami's influence. And now we all know about anime and manga. People, you know, it's commonplace, um, at least to have seen maybe a Miyazaki movie or, um, you know, and certainly younger generations of people are very thrilled with anime and manga. Um, that's a, sorry, that was a really long discursion into, uh, into no, it's a monster idea. <laughs> so anyway, monsters just became a great theme. And his monsters are scary and cute. And, you know, they're they're just so weird and fun you know we thought it would be a hit yeah that's the real it is a hit (laughs) so um just just seeing how many people come through the exhibition i mean you you get the sense people come for his monsters and they're yeah they're not scary unless you think about them for a while and then they're scary um and they're you know they, they they lure you in i think you know a lot of what i love about his work is the way in which it subtly combines images from history combines images from the modern moment um and his techniques of course are all techniques that we know from you know contemporary other contemporary artists um but he he very i think deftly lures you mm-hmm. and then surprises you and uh, that's what great art should do um but so you know you started meeting with him you saw these various shows um when do you think your your personal relationship with him kind of got to the place where you could actually create an exhibition? I mean, I remember you coming to my office a few times and saying, this isn't going so well. I don't think he wants to do a show with us. But it changed. Yeah. I never felt that he didn't want to do it, but he wasn't really engaged. And um, so he, he did kind of ignore the monster thing. Mm-hmm. And then... There was a point, I think, during the pandemic when we kind of turned a corner because one of the things we had asked him to do was to do record an interview with us because I couldn't be there with him to do, you know, kind of this kind of conversation. I sent him lots of questions and he recorded his answers on video. So we have two sets of footage, one from 2020 and one from two years later toward the end of the pandemic. And somehow that process of, you know, asking the questions and then hearing his answers and asking more questions and following up, I think, started to work. And also the other thing, you know, I had visited him a couple of times before the pandemic, but 
the thing that made a difference was that I was I was seeing sketches that he was making in the studio when he's all alone during during COVID. He's really like this giant studio, and he's just all alone in his studio, and he's making sketches of monsters. So whether that was because he just loves monsters or because he was thinking about the show, I don't know. But And so I would put them on my object list and then send the object list to the studio and say, we really want these in the show. Mm -hmm. Turn them into a painting. And I kept doing that over and over and over. I was very persistent. Um, and I think that that really was a turning point and it became more of a collaboration from that point on. Yeah. Well, and it really, you know, it became, by the end, a true collaboration in, in the sense that, you know, he came to our museum. He spent his time standing in the gallery space saying, this has got to move just a, just a little bit that way. Just, you know, two millimeters to the left. And that one has to go over there on a different wall. Um, so, you know, he really took ownership of that physical space in, in a way that I'm not sure I've ever seen any other collaborator or or artist do in our space and uh it was wonderful i mean it was a great experience to have because it felt to me as though you had really achieved that kind of um you know deep understanding of what each of you was trying to do and he was completely bought in to the outcome he continues to be in touch with us um he he writes every few days <laughs> to ask how many people have come to see the show um how much product is sold in the store this is the ceo talking and then um to talk about other things he wants to do with us so the collaboration continues which i think is also a really nice um that's a great outcome for an exhibition but um you know i wanted to to kind of take us in the direction of what was i going to take us to think about um that that process of getting getting all of these images um together you you mentioned seeing you know his little monster sketches during those interactions you know sort of during covid and immediately afterward most of the artwork that's in this show was created during the pandemic is that okay maybe maybe two thirds of it uh, is that about right yeah well Half or two thirds, between half and two thirds. There, he. Um, hmm. One of the problems that actually now, now you're reminding me. One of the mm. problems that came up in in the pandemic was that we wanted to have new works in the show, but there weren't any new works. In, there weren't any new works being produced in the studio. So we were. I was getting sort of panicky. Like, what are we going to show? We have, we have. You know, these works from the past five years. What's What's the rest of it going to be like? Um, and he did produce an awful lot of new work for the show. So all of the NFT paintings, uh, he got really into NFTs during the pandemic and decided they were going to save the world. And, uh, and he he collaborated on two two different sets of NFTs, which are digital digital art art that exists only in digital form. So because he's a, a very much a pessimist. He made physical kind of reproductions of the NFTs, which he said were, even if NFTs go away and no one ever hears about them again, there will still be these paintings to record the moment. He really likes to record what's going on at any given time 
you know, he's commenting on how, you know, where, what direction society is going in often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even to the point of um, part of the show brings together some of his process sketches for the unfamiliar paint, unfamiliar people paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was fascinated to see he numbers each one of his sketches. He writes comments to his studio staff, and then he puts the date and the time when he made the sketch. So it's, I mean, it, it, he's really recording. I mean, it's almost like a diary entry where he's talking about what's going on in society and what's going on in his life at the very moment when he's making his art. One of my unfortunate interview questions was, if you had a time capsule right now, what would you put into it? And he came back with, you know, oh, everything I do is a time capsule. (laughs) And my Instagram is the main time capsule. There's nothing monsterized <laughs> about his ego when that is there. <laughs> so the the sketches, you know, he, he many artists, I think, they keep a very careful archive of their work. Sure. Um, one of the things that happened when I went to the studio was each time I went, he would talk about young people and how he wanted young people to come and see this exhibition and how important he thought it was to encourage young artists to create. So that's a really big deal for him. So I thought that one of the th- ways to do that in the exhibition was to put out the sketches so that people can see how he's, you know, his actual drawings, because the paintings are made by his studio members. They're, they're produced by his studio members with his supervision. Um, so we have a lot of sketches and they're very, very interesting. You can see his ideas evolve over time. And, um, you know, if you look at the dates, especially the dates that are really close to the exhibition opening, you can appreciate how hard he was working mm-hmm. as he got closer and closer to the deadline. Yes. And there was some, <laughs> some anxiety toward the end. <laughs> will the painting come or will there be a big blank empty wall? Um, but uh, he delivered, he was very, very serious about getting it done. Um, you know, I included a, a large group of slides to kind of share with you folks what it looks like in his studio as his team of um, artists creates his work and you kind of get a, get a little bit of a sense. And maybe Mark, if you, if you could switch to the other set of pictures that we have, there he is. Anyway, he'll go away in a second and we'll see his studio there. There's a very large painting in the exhibition called judgment day which um, didn't exist in April, um, but got to our museum by August. Uh, and it just stayed for five years before. Yes. It, you know, we always say that, you know, people ask, how long did it take to create this work of art? It took a lifetime <laughs> of learning and thinking. And so it was, it was in process. Can you, can you click those, these, oh no, wait, Mark, you gave me the clicker. And I said, I put the clicker in my pocket. And you might have to remind me that I put it there. That's Judgment Day. So it's that long painting and it's it's 82 feet long, 25 separate canvas panels um, stretched over a wooden frame. Um, and at least watching our art handlers as they struggled to install each of these, they're very heavy, these panels. So um, it was a a process to get it up on the they're wall. Big. They're big. Yeah, it's about it's about what nine and a half feet tall. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, it's hard to get a sense of the scale. Yeah, the so that's a that's a sixteen foot wall, and it's taken up a big chunk of that sixteen foot high wall. Um, so here's Takashi in his studio with the sketch for this painting up on the wall behind him. So that's the King of Hell there in the middle, who will eventually become part of the painting. Um, here's the full scale black outline being produced <laughs> with one of his his workers up on a ladder. And then here's the beginning of his process, Takashi's process of putting color on his drawing. You might want to stop and explain that a little bit. Why don't you go right ahead? The, How exactly does he do this? <laughs> yeah, so the... The different paintings are made in different ways. This one was assembled out of images that were kind of grabbed from different Japanese woodblock prints, existing ones from the 19th century. And they're all kind of assembled together into one giant composition. So he took the images and played with them like in Photoshop or some other digital tool to make that composition. And then they can kind of print out, he just did it in outline first, and then they can print out sections of it. Um, and he started assigning the colors to the figures piece by piece, sort of two panels at a time. So what you're looking at at the bottom is a printout in which they've decided on some of the colors, probably, um, it's, it's kind of complicated, but the way they produce the paintings, they print color after color after color in successive waves. Mm -hmm. um, so this is probably one stage of color. It's pretty, um, you know, it, it's, it's missing a lot of the it's missing lot layers. Of, yeah. So that's an early stage color process drawing. And then um, behind there, they have a, the giant blow up of the same thing. That's what you're seeing on the wall. It's not the painting yet. It's just the giant blow up. He keeps these in the studio so that he can mm -hmm. kind of sit there at his desk and look at them and think about them. And then he'll go back to his digital team and they'll make adjustments, um, adjust the colors, adjust parts of the composition until he's decided everything is right. Yeah. So that's all preparatory. And none of the stuff you see in the picture is actually physically here at the museum. You know, so the painting is it's going to come later. So here... Um, we skip a whole bunch of steps and you begin to see his studio workers um, working on the panels that are hung on the wall at the museum. And you can see one of them has a silk screen in his hand. Um, many of you have probably tried silk screen printing at some point or you've bought a T-shirt. Um, that's where we see silk screen printing still done. Um, but all of his paintings in this show use this silk screening process to apply color. So it's not brushed on with a paintbrush, but rather the color is applied using a squeegee. Mm. Mm. Okay, maybe not all of them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a combination. Com yeah. So they they use a brush to apply the paint to the screen mm -hmm. and then squeegee yes. it through. Right. Yeah. And, and so he's got lots of assistants there. I think... He has uh, four, maybe 40 people all total worked on this project, um, which you need for, you know, an 82 foot long painting, especially done round the clock. They had crews working around the clock. 
and it's acrylic. And so it does dry quickly. You might be able to see, well, some of these pictures show them with a blow dryer. Yeah, let's Trying to get to dry see. it fast. I think this is a picture of squeegeeing. Yeah, that the color. That's a good one because you can see them dabbing the color on. Um, you know, dab, 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 and then it comes out like a kind of when when it's overprinted with those little dabs of color, becomes like a almost like a camouflage pattern. That's nice. Yes, I really like this. You know, for for those who don't understand how silkscreen works. Um, here's the the kind of silk screen with its mask. So the masked off parts where you don't see her through the uh, through the screen, the color doesn't go through those parts. It only goes through the transparent parts. Yeah, that's great. So, great but um, what did he say? There are ten thousand separate screens for this painting, which is probably a rough estimate, but he might be exaggerating a little bit. It's a lot. Of, of screens. And they keep all the screens for every Numbered and careful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can see them. So that's getting farther and farther along in the process. But they keep, they keep adding more screens and more color in many, many layers. So one pro tip, if you go to the exhibition, um, stand not necessarily for this painting but some of the other paintings that are super shiny and look flat stand at an angle to them and see if they, you can find a spot where there's raking light and you'll be able to actually see the layers of paint mm -hmm. and um, it's much more impressive then because then you can see how very small areas of color might be from one you know over printing mm -hmm. um, I think it's really you know interesting that he's he's grabbed onto this technique you know i mean it's a technique that you know we know from andy warhol of course you know who was a master of silkscreen printmaking um but it's one that's been picked up by a number of contemporary artists and i mean has did he ever talk about why why this process mm, or do you think it has any meaning for him i mean we don't I think know. he started using it really early on because mm -hmm. it was kind of like a commercial process mm -hmm. and he was interested in making things that look like they were commercial goods, mm -hmm. you know, cartoon characters and done in a commercial way. And Matt might have been interested in Andy Warhol. I never asked him. Yeah. But I think now because he wants to make such large and ambitious paintings, it's the only way he could do it. Right. Um, yeah. And the interesting thing about it to me, you know, now that I know more about, and, you know, we've talked about this before, for sure. Now that I know more about the process and seen the most recent works in the show is that he keeps evolving it. He is just, he never stops thinking about new ways he can use that process and push that process and combine it with different techniques. So now in the, there are four paintings toward the end of the show where he combines the very flat, smooth, glossy printing with textured printing, right side by side, where you can see the threads of the canvas. Um, and, you know, he's he's always evolving and kind of always trying new things. He's really curious about process. And I think he's automated it a lot now, you know, um, figured out ways to use technology to speed things up. Um, and the squeegee method didn't, he didn't use that at the very beginning. Mm. There's another technique that you don't see. Oh, is that me? Wrong, making it wrong? No, I think it's okay. The, it's a cart upstairs. See, the, the, um, 
thing that you don't see in this painting that's interesting is another technique that he uses where he'll layer on colors and then sand down through them so that you kind of see the layers of color. If you go to the exhibition, look at the blue and white fish paintings, and you'll see that really clearly. It makes the, you know, very variegated surfaces and textures come out in the paintings. It's really uh, magical. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've been sort of stunned by, you know, people standing in front of those paintings that have been sanded down mm-hmm. just keep saying to me, oh, I didn't realize there was so much color there mm-hmm. because he'll lay on, you know, layers of green and red and blue and then cover it all with white and then sand back into it a little bit so that just just hints of those other colors come through and it creates a rich surface. And it, it you know, it reminds me of... um Oh, back in art history school, you know, we would hear about European techniques, you know, glazing techniques that were used by Dutch, you know, what are we called? Northern Renaissance painters in which they would underlay their colors with contrasting complementary colors um, in order to create this kind of luminous quality. And I think he he really explores that um, in his own modern, modern way. So. Um, it makes his art worth paying attention to and makes, like you said earlier, you have to see it in person to see that because once it gets printed in the book or it gets shown on a screen like this or on zoom, um, it disappears, it flattens out and, you know, the kind of the richness of, of the painted surface goes away. So, but, uh, it rewards, you know, spending time sitting with it. And I, I've been amazed seeing the audiences that have come to the museum, you know, even, even people, my child's age, um, stand there kind of in awe and, you know, dissecting the painting and, you know, really looking at all of the little characters, little figures, but then also looking at the, at the approach to image making. And I think, okay, Takashi's right. People have to come and see it. (laughs) And, uh, he's inspiring a, a next generation um, of of creative artists, which is really kind of great. Um, there you go. There's one of the panels that's finally getting close to uh, close to fully painted. Once he sent these paintings to San Francisco, um, or, or like the, the little NFT paintings, the square digital art paintings, um, he sent his conservator who with a magnifying glass stared at these, you know, paintings that look like they were painted yesterday and then took them off the wall and scurried away with them and spent hours doing minute touch-ups, mm-hmm. like the, just the tiniest little. I didn't know what to think of that process. It felt, it felt, like, you know, we talked, Laura, you, you mentioned the otaku culture, that culture of sort of obsessive fascination with a particular subject. And in some ways, seeing Takashi and his staff, they embody that with respect to his art. I mean, they really care down to the tiniest little mark or scratch or fleck of dust. The, I think the results... You know, the paintings wouldn't look, they wouldn't be as compelling. They wouldn't be so riveting if they weren't so carefully thought out and so um, 
perfectly finished. You know, he he wanted everything. <laughs> they measured, they remeasured. The the paintings had to be exactly, you know, a certain width from the floor, a height from the floor. Everything, the presentation, the production of the paintings, but also how they were hung in the galleries. Everything mattered equally. The lighting, um, and it really pays off. You right. Know, yeah. They 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 shine because of that. Yeah. So for the first time with this exhibition, um, he, Takashi, and his team informed us that before anything would be installed in the exhibition space, we would have to create what he called the dummies. Because you have to have dummies. Dummies are just giant pieces of brown butcher paper cut exactly to the shape of each of his paintings that we hung first so that he and his staff could stand among these surrogates for his paintings and say, (laughs) and it was several days of nudging tiny, tiny moves. Two centimeters to the right. Yes. Yeah. And the the labels and the wall panels too had to be mm-hmm. just right. Everything was precise. You're reminding me that was intense. It was intense. <laughs> we all have a little PTSD <laughs> from this exhibition and the process of getting it here, um, but now it's here. You know, and uh, it's it's doing what it's supposed to do. Um, one thing I wanted to to kind of. Um, get us to think about a little bit is um, this show is going to run for another two months. It runs until middle, the middle of February. So you have lots of time to go and see it over and over again to be inspired. Um, But what's going to be next for him? I mean, he's kind of hinted at us and certainly we know his staff and they've kind of given us some ideas, but uh, where's he going? Where do you think he's going with his, his work? Well, he, he um, has had a hard time getting the same degree of recognition in within Japan that he has outside. So I think uh, maybe the next phase is uh, attaining a, the stature of a kind of a senior artist mm-hmm. within Japan. His next show is opening on February 2nd. He's currently making paintings for that one. And it's in at the Kyocera Museum in Kyoto. Um and I think that, you know, that's an important milestone for him. There are also, there's the NHK, the Japanese documentary, you know, one of the NHK World documentary series is going to be on his work. They're making a documentary. So I think he wants to establish himself as like Japan's most important living contemporary artist. And, you know, that's surely a goal of his. And beyond that, he doesn't work, um, interestingly, you know, he, he only works in reaction to somebody coming to him and saying, we'd like to do a show, or we'd like to do a collaboration, or we'd like you to work on this commission. He doesn't uh, come up with ideas except for his own shows. So he's curated many shows of his own collections, and you know, he has a ceramics collection. He has a collection of paintings from the 80s and 90s, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's curated exhibitions of those, and those he'll make an effort, you know, with. And he also has a studio of artists who, um, some of whom came up through his studio as studio assistants, and he promotes their work abroad and, you know, hosts shows of their work. And he also has a, an annual, no, what's twice a year? Twice a year, bi- biennial. Biennial uh, exhibitions no. of 
biannual. Oh, biannual? Twice a year. We'll just say twice a year. Yeah, twice. Semi-annual. That's it. Yeah. What's that word? (laughs) Call for help. Um, Biannual. Biannual shows the work of young uh, Japanese artists just to encourage them. He hosts these exhibitions. So he's a very busy guy. Yeah. I see Jim standing there. Yeah. Uh, Jim is thinking, oh. We'll we'll, we'll let you finish your thought, please. Yes. Well, and and with that, we're going to move on to questions and answers that might be here in our studio audience yeah <laughs> we have 15 minutes uh for you to just say what you'd like to say and we'll come around with microphones um as the moderator i have the first question <laughs> you talked uh Laura, a little bit about uh oh i'm sorry uh you talked about uh the art uh basically the painting but what about the sculpture? Uh, one of the most fascinating objects in the exhibit is his self-portrait. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and even what's on the bottom underneath. Mm. found that fascinating. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's my favorite piece in the show. Yeah. So his self-portrait, it's toward the end of the exhibition. Do we have a picture of this? Oh, uh, we don't have a picture of the sculpture. Oh, it's at the yeah. other end of the gallery. Well, from You have to go and see the see the show. But it's a... A sculpture of the naked Murakami, and it, it's made of uh, like uh, fiberglass reinforced plastic covered with platinum leaf. So it looks like it's this silver glowing object, and it's him naked, standing there with his with his actual giant glasses on, and then monsters coming out of his head, and he's standing on a little platform that looks like a, you know maybe a dais for a Buddhist sculpture or, you know, some kind of uh, raised platform for a holy being normally. So that's very tongue in cheek because he's standing there all naked with his stomach sticking out, (laughs) kind of hunched over, you know, with the weight of all these heads on top of him. And um, there's a, there's a, you know, an immortal turtle underneath his feet He's got his plastic workshop sandals on and uncut toenails. Um, and, you know, the, but the bottom of it implies that he's an immortal or he's a holy being. And there are various references to the cardinal directions and, you know, little like a shrine fence or a temple fence around the periphery. Yeah, that is my favorite object in the exhibit as well. And I saw a few hands up here. Doctor, you spoke briefly about the idea of this being your favorite sculpture where the monsters are coming out of his head and this is a reoccurring theme. And then, Rob, you you spoke to this idea of great art is something that pulls you in and it surprises you. I wondered if you guys could talk a bit about, I suppose, what we could sort of put under the umbrella of pathos and that there's an undercurrent to the show in spite of these bright colors that are exciting and pull tens of thousands in. But consumer culture, internet culture, um, the idea of capitalism as it relates specifically to money. He had several quotes on the wall mm-hmm. um, that are going back, you know, we think even uh, the Scottish uh, economist whose name I can't think of right now. But yes, mm-hmm. and, and so that, but also specifically his own pathos, because he talks about his own uh, suicide and he talks about, uh, you know, the monsters within. Mm-hmm. But then there's also... Uh, 
you know, wide publications on his own challenges with some of his studios in the past, studio workers in the past, revolting against him because of that obsessive quality. So I'd love to hear you guys talk about some of this, which I think is an incredible part of the reality of him. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's faced a lot of challenges in his career, and, you know, he is a very underneath it all very sad sad clown you know mm -hmm. um he nearly went bankrupt during the pandemic and um i think that paintings are specifically meant to say that we live in this chaotic out of control world the monsters are our own self-destructive potential our potential to destroy the world around us um he's you know he's very conscious of that and bringing it out it's a definitely a theme in his paintings and the fact that they make you laugh but they have this kind of serious and even dark subject matter i think is um you know it's really so particular to his work and really such an important aspect of his work balancing that you know there's a a, a statue that's the uh, silver uh, silver buddha um, maybe you saw that one too. It has the smiling face on the front and the scary face on the back, two sides of human nature. He's constantly reflecting on that, you know, the paradox that we can't escape the demons within. Love it. You'll have to come to the show because if you haven't seen these sculptures, they're not in the slideshow here. Real. <laughs> so, uh, we have more questions. Mine is uh, quite a simple question, but has how has his art evolved from the 80s? Has it stayed the same or has it evolved? Um, I think it's evolved a lot. Um, he, you know, he started out as a Nihonga painter, painting traditional <laughs> Japanese style paintings and as a graduate student and, you know, then turned towards these cartoon, like, so first actually some conceptual art um, following, you know, his idols and who were active in New York, but then introducing the cartoon characters, I think he's gotten to a point now where he really is so sure of his, he's so confident that he can work across many different mediums and he works in a lot of different styles. So if you go to the exhibition, you can see this grand monumental painting that's, you know, ukiyo-e, Japanese woodblock print themes. You see the fish paintings, which are completely different style using that sanding technique. The NFT paintings, which are about serial art, you know, series of things and about money as well. The unfamiliar people, um, a different style, again, doesn't use that camouflage technique. And he's exploring the contrast between the, you know, textured surface and the flatness. So at this point in his career, he has incredible breath and, um, you know, he's still struggling. You know, he says, I can't think of anything new to do. And then he comes across and does something new. You know, it's amazing, really. Super fan. <laughs> Hi, Laura. I wanted to know, um, how was this exhibit titled? What was your role and what was his? <laughs> well, I think the museum, what, what was her original title? Oh, I remember. Uh, it was like Takashi Murakami colon mon monster something. Oh, monsters on your mind. Monsters on your mind. Mon or or we are all monsters. We are all the monsters. That was my title. Yeah. 
And, that was a good title. And, and so we, really gave him, we gave him a bunch of titles, including, you know, the one that I had done. And he came back, like, he said, no, 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 none of those are any good. And then he sent us this Takashi Murakami, Unfamiliar People, Swelling of Monsterized Human Ego, which to me, it sounds like the headline from a, you know, from a weekly news. world news, weekly yeah. world news <laughs> headline, unfamiliar people, you know, they're watch out. There's, they have the swelling of monsterized human ego and people at the museum said, no way can we use that title? Way too long. Way too long. It has two colons in it. It's it just so many things were wrong with this title. But it's and, one of his artworks, you know. You know it's, our, yeah, it's... and our, our, you know, of course our marketing team told us how unwise it was to go with this title. You need a one-word title these days. And we uh, decided Takashi knows best. Whatever he <laughs> says the title should be, that's what the title should be. At least it has his name at the front because that's what's going to sell. <laughs> um, and it's interesting, you know, he did then allow us to call the show... Takashi Murakami monsterized, which if you've listened to the to uh, radio, you know, public radio, you hear them running that promo. And every time I hear it, I think, uh -huh, that's not the title. <laughs> you got to read all those other words and try to make it sound like like it means something. Um, but it's a it's a great title. And I think it actually hooks into the people who know his work and who know him. They know what he's talking about. And that's the most important thing. I mean, he's communicating with his fans and, you know, we're fool, foolhardy to think we can describe what he does better than he can. That's very true. So anyway, he won. Yeah. <laughs> back there. There's someone in the oh, back there. Sorry, really so what, what I found, um, what I found most fascinating about it was the big old mural. I forgot the name of it. The one with the boat in the middle. Okay. So you've got traditional, facets on the far left and the far right of Kunisara Kuniyoshi. I forget which one is which one. Has he ever verbalized um, why he is using them in this context or his relationship with, with these paeans of traditional Japanese art? He, he told me that he avoided using ukiyo-e or wood, woodblock prints uh, until very recently. So you asked about how his work has evolved. It's only since 2019 that he's using motifs from traditional woodblock prints. And he said he finally got over his fear of using such a stereotypically Japanese kind of visual language because he saw the anime artists, the people creating little cartoons on Netflix, mm -hmm. they feel free to use this kind of imagery and do really wacky things with it. So suddenly that freed him. And he um, he did talk, you know, at some length about what the painting means. It's about cultural exchanges between East and West. So the boats are full of Western people on one side and Japanese, Japanese people on the other side. Um, it's about translation and mistranslation, you know, in the visual arts. He felt freed to use, you know, especially what everybody thinks of when they think of Japanese art, are these mm -hmm. these types of images. And he's done a theater curtain for the Kabuki Theater, uh, also in 2020, uh, which is interesting. So he's actually working with Kabuki actors and paying tribute to them. So he's kind of dived into that world a little bit recently. It's amazing. I mean, the fact that he's been welcomed into 
<laughs> the Kabuki theater, which, you know, is, is sort of, you know, that's a, a vestige of traditional Japan. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's another one of those moments where, where I, I'm, I remember the first time I encountered Takashi's work and it was when I was starting graduate school. Uh, so like 1990 and I thought, okay, pop art. And I remember my professor saying to me, that's not art, <laughs> you know, that's just commercial stuff. It's just, that's just, and now, you know, to see him so closely tied to traditional Japan mm. makes me just think mm, the seed was always there. Mm -hmm. um, it just took time. It took 30 years for him to, to arrive, but he's arrived and there's going to be a lot more of him. I think, um, I think the way to wrap us up here, because we're about to go have sake and snacks outside, which is another part of tonight, which is really great. But Laura, what's your next project? Takashi Murakami's done now. What's going to be the next one? Oh, it, do we want to talk about the Heart of Zen at all? Oh, there's the currently next one. Heart of Zen. You guys all know about Heart of Zen. Heart of Zen. It's great. Um, so those are our persimmons and chestnuts paintings that have come from the Okoin um, a sub-temple of Daitokuji in Kyoto. And uh, they're fabulous. They're Chinese paintings. But it's, they're... A it's a show about the reception of two wonderful Chinese ink paintings in Japan. They, so they've been in a Japanese Zen temple for 400 years. And so the, the show is kind of a, you know, a chance to see these paintings, which have never left Japan since they got there. And it's also a chance to think about, you know, why they're treasured in Japan yeah. and how they were adapted for the, you know, for use in tea gatherings and kind of the context in Japan. Interesting little show. Yeah. Yeah. And super famous paintings, which you will never see again. Yeah. <laughs> and you've never seen before. So, you know, if you get a chance, the chestnuts will be up until the end of December, December 31st. Um, the persimmons came down day before yesterday and are... On their way back to Japan. So um, come see the, come to the exhibit. You gotta come and see it. Um, well, what I just want to say is because I see Jake Myrick and uh, they, the lovely wife, uh, Noriko, they're from Sequoia Saki and they are beckoning us to go outside. And I also want to thank uh, Kenichi Kawasawa. Uh, who has Kawasawa's Kitchens, and we have some snacks to go along with a, with a uh, sake. So, Dr. Mintz and Dr. Allen, thank you so much for a very wonderful... And well, listen to this, the 100th meeting, 120th meeting of the Commonwealth Club is now officially adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.